All right, we are live. Well, uh, hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to a live stream edition of the Biblical Anarchy podcast, project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, part of the Christians for Liberty Network. So uh, this week and every week on Biblical Anarchy, uh, we seek to live counterculture to the empire of man and to instead seek the kingdom of God by unpacking what the Bible teaches about government, authority, and human relationships. I am your host, Jacob Winograd. Uh, today, uh, so we're doing a live stream version of, of the show. Uh, we're going to be doing more of these actually in the coming year here at LCI, not just my show, but you'll probably be seeing more live streams in general so make sure you're subscribed to our youtube channel and all that so you can check that um we will be getting on rumble and all that stuff too you know we're a little behind the times here uh but we'll be <laughs> on rumble and uh odyssey and all that stuff here soon uh doing live streams as well and having important conversations with uh interesting and well-informed guests such as our guest for today uh, our guest for today is someone who uh, is returning to the show for his third time now and probably is well known uh, in my audience already uh, if they are fellow libertarians. Name is Kyle Anzalone of the Libertarian Institute and also Antiwar.com. Kyle, thanks for joining me tonight. How are you doing? Doing good. Thanks for having me uh, uh, back on the program. Yeah, of course. Uh, Kyle, you've been on the show a few times now, so I feel like you don't need too much introduction, but just give a you know a couple minutes here at the beginning before we dive into our conversation today and just reintroduce yourself, explain your background, what it is you do with the Libertarian Institute and antiwar.com. Yeah, so Kyle Anzalone, I am the news editor at the Libertarian Institute, and of course Scott Horton uh, founded the Libertarian Institute 2015 or 2016, and I've been with them pretty much since the start. So about eight years there, started off just posting things on the blog and slowly, you know, built into more and more. And now I write daily news stories for the Institute and produce my podcast, Conflicts of Interest, which once a week, uh, Connor Freeman joins me as the co-host for that show. Uh, typically, I just do Monday, Wednesday, Friday episodes of the show. Although over the past month or so, there's just been so much going on uh, that I've been putting out shows nearly every weekday, uh, just an effort to keep up with the amount of news. And then on top of that, I am the opinion editor at antiwar.com. Uh, that's a position that I assumed from Scott Horton about oh, five years ago now. And so if you go to the antiwar.com and look at the viewpoint section in the spotlight article uh, every day of the week, I... I you know, curate those articles I um, and, and decide kind of what goes up there along with the rest of the team at antiwar.com. And then I also write news articles for antiwar.com on the weekend. Awesome. Yeah, I, I, uh, I imagine it's probably hard for you guys to find a consistent uh, schedule for content because you're kind of uh, reacting to, to live news and whatnot. And, and sometimes you just got to you know, go where the stories go. Uh, that's sort of why at, at LCI we're, we're starting to gear up and do more live content. And specifically, I've been the one who's kind of been uh, <laughs> pushing to do more of it, mainly because, uh, and I think other people on the Christians for Liberty Network cover foreign policy, but I tend to be the, the one here at the Christian Institute who uh, does the most of it. And it's like, you know, sometimes it's like, hey, if we, uh, do it through our normal scheduled programming. I'm talking about stuff four weeks after it happened by the time it gets through the rotation. So uh, live streams help to at least get, you know, some more uh, live reactions and, and, and updates and uh, 
conversations. So that will segue from that into what we're here to talk about today. So uh, unless you've been sleeping under a rock, you probably know that there was a pretty big uh, or, you know, big in terms of views and then big in terms of just like the the the, uh, the impact of of the event itself. Uh, but the interview that Tucker Carlson had with Vladimir Putin, uh, this is huge because not only uh, is it like kind of the first, I think, major sit down interview Putin's given uh, probably in a long time. And then like really since this recent war broke out and then he's doing it with Tucker, who was the biggest like uh, cable news TV news host in the country and then got basically fired and now has his own online show that's bigger than his old cable news show. And so, you know, this and then, of course, the uh, the corporate media had their reactions and stuff. Uh, but this was a very interesting interview. I mean, it was it was kind of hard to, to watch because the first hour was just Putin sort of like you know, being a statesman and and answering questions by giving long, uh, drawn out history lessons. <laughs> uh, but so I'll, I want to I want to ha- I wanted to have you on because I know you know although you you cover a lot of different topics, but I know Ukraine and Russia has been one that you've been focusing on over there at the, uh, the Institute and Antiwar dot com. So to start out here, I have a two part question for you. Uh, we're going to get into the interview, but I also because it's been a while since I had you on uh, to talk about Ukraine and Russia, I want to start out by sort of just getting a little bit of an update in terms of the current status of the war between Ukraine and Russia and America's involvement. Um, Has either side really taken any ground recently or, you know, uh, is there any progress? It's still just kind of a stalemate. Um, And then also, uh, is, is there any you know, update in terms of like potential peace deals or anything like that going on, potential resolutions on the horizon or anything like that. Uh, so we'll go ahead and kind of get us caught up the date in terms of what's happened over the last, you know, six to 12 months since we, we last uh, talked about this. Yeah. So I, I guess if we're looking at the past 12 months, the biggest thing that happened was the summer counteroffensive that Ukraine launched last year. Now, this was something that was signaled for months. It really since February of 2023, people were aware that the counteroffensive was going to. Well, in fact, they were talking about in November of 2022 after they had a somewhat successful counteroffensive in the fall of that year. But really starting in February, March in 2023, you know, the, the U.S. and its allies started leaking that they were helping Ukraine to plan the summer counteroffensive. And so in response, Russia uh, just did a massive defensive buildup. They stopped trying to take territory in Ukraine. They planted mines. They had three lines of defenses, and they were well prepared for the Ukrainian counteroffensive. Now, importantly, too, the Ukrainian counteroffensive, the troops were under-trained, they were under-equipped, and they lacked air support. And so what happened was is that the Ukrainian troops, at the urging of Ukraine's Western backers, were marched into Russian front lines in what the West acknowledged was uh, high casualty tactics, and they were just chewed up. I mean, they ran into a Russian buzzsaw and, and were completely chewed up. And so this created major problems for the Ukrainians in the fall of 2023. 
you know, they're starting to lack troops, they're starting to lack equipment. And now we even just in the past couple of weeks have had some pretty major admissions from Western press. The Washington Post reports that a lot of Ukrainian brigades are at 35 percent, you know, so roughly one third the strength they should be. The troops that are there are well, you know, they're they're engaged in combat far too often, right? And so uh, it's supposed to be that troops are only on the front line for three days at a time before they rotate out, but those are frequently being extended. The troops, any new troops that go to these brigades that are understaffed are far under-trained. And so rather, and one of the ways they're trying to make up for the troops shortage is to put these troops on the front lines that haven't been in combat before. And so it's just an absolute nightmare. Uh, the big, the big uh, equipment shortages facing the Ukrainians are 155 millimeter shells and air defense systems. And so uh, the U.S. recently uh, came through. So, so all right, let's. I guess I'll go back. At the end of 2023, the White House officially ran out of funding to continue to send weapons to Ukraine. Now, there's a little asterisk on that because the U.S. has bought weapons for Ukraine that haven't yet been delivered. And so just a couple weeks ago, they delivered a shipment of long-range bombs. These are supposed to be airdropped munitions, but they strapped them to rocket motors. And so they're, they're supposed to be like bombs that a plane will drop and then they glide down to their target. And rather than them plane dropping them they strapped them to rocket motors and so then they go out and they're gps guided to their target and so weapons like that from the west are still trickling into ukraine but as for the last two months the white house actually hasn't had any funds to approve new weapon shipments to ukraine now there's a bill moving through it just passed the senate it's 95 billion dollars initially this was about 120 something billion 118 billion i think and this included the border security trump objected to that and so the republicans said it was dead on arrival and so the, then the senate stripped out the border stuff and just introduced the military aid so this is funding 61 million to ukraine 14 million to Israel, and then additional billions that go to replenishing U.S. stockpiles. Uh, there, there's money that is going to go to replenish the U.S. munitions that have been used to bomb Yemen, money going to SEMCOM that has been used to conduct operations against you know, the Houthi in Yemen, the Shia militias in Iraq and Syria, and then additionally, uh, money for the military buildup in the asia pacific against china so all that is packed into this bill moving through the senate i don't think it's going to pass the house without the border stuff it just seems like too much of a giveaway for the house uh so at, at this point I, I think the the current funding for ukraine is tied up but even if they got the funding uh, Jacob, there's a lot of problems as far as production goes, where at this point, if, if a country orders 155 millimeter shells, which is one of the crucial weapons that Ukraine lets, it takes two years for those weapons to be delivered. And so the U.S. has been trying to uh, circumvent the, the shortage by providing Ukraine with uh, cluster munitions versus conventional, just, you know, single warheads on the munitions, but those really aren't as effective against Russian armor. And even then, Ukraine is pretty much out of them. And additionally, they're running out of air defenses. The U.S. has actually cut a deal with Japan where Japan altered their constitution so they could send Patriot uh, interceptors that are licensed from Raytheon to be uh, made in Japan by Mitsubishi. And then Japan is now shipping those to the U.S., which 
those can't go to Ukraine uh, under the Japanese constitution. But if they ship their interceptors to the U.S., then that frees us up to ship some of our interceptors to Ukraine. And all this is absurd and just shows the logistical problem and the shortages in the U.S. stockpile. So, you know, short very short jacob it's not good for ukraine right now and this is being admitted in mainstream media outlets the the business insider just had an article today all about how bleak things are looking for the ukrainians uh and even the uh, a norwegian military intelligence officer recently said that russia is not facing those same challenges they have a massive reserve uh, of troops that they could draw from but they you know really haven't needed to so far and additionally their economy is equipped for the wartime and they are producing weapons and ammunition and not facing the same shortages that the ukrainians are uh so far there hasn't been a whole lot of territory changing hands and you know some people look at this as maybe a success of the ukrainians that they're really wearing down the russian offensive and it just uh, you know, I think it depends on how you look at what the Russian strategy is right now, where Russia has said that they plan to achieve their goals militarily, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to use their military to conquer all the Ukrainian territory they want. I think Putin's strategy at this point is to fight the Ukrainians until a collapse of the Ukrainian military, right? The, the goal isn't to take Ukrainian territory. The goal is to keep the Ukrainians fighting until their military can no longer defend Ukrainian territory, at which point he's going to issue Kiev a list of demands that they don't have a choice whether or not to accept. I, I think that's kind of the way the Russians are looking at this. And so for people looking at the war right now and not seeing a whole lot of territory changing hands, I think that's a part of the Russian strategy. And, and a part of that reason is it's to take a lot of territory. It's going to cost you a whole lot of troops and a whole lot of lives. But, uh, you know, kind of slowly advance, you could do that without taking a huge number of casualties. And so I think that's the Russian strategy at this point. Uh, that, you know, that's just my interpretation for people who want to look at it differently. Like, you know, the, the, Russians are just throwing wave after wave of young men at the Ukrainians, and they're only gaining a few meters of territory. I, I don't think if you look at the battlefield and, and kind of what's going on, that's really how it's playing out. But some people are presenting it that way. Either way, Russia is slowly gaining territory, and Ukraine is slowly running out of young men and arms to fend off the Russians. Right. Yeah, so... You know, it oh, wait, really... can I add one thing? Oh, yeah, that, sure. That was pretty, uh, this was a big news story this week. So uh, Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, also fired the head of the Ukrainian military, Zelushny, this week. And there's a lot of speculation as to why that was going to happen. Uh, the, you know, there was some speculation that he was going to promote the head of the Ukrainian mili uh, intelligence to the head of the military. And that suggested to me that maybe Zelensky thought there was going to be a major collapse on the front lines and was preparing to wage more of a counterinsurgency than actual war. Uh, but he ended up appointing somebody who was just a loyalist. And so I think it was just a political move by Zelensky to try to oust somebody in the one of the most popular figures in Ukraine uh, is Zelushny, who, who was just until he was fired, the head of the military. I think this is going to backfire for Zelensky. I think Ukrainians are in for some major defeats coming up. And the fact that Zelushny got out of town when he did may actually 
kind of increase his reputation in Ukraine, not hurt it. What 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 is the uh, the sentiment of the Ukrainian people, as far as you can tell? I mean, uh, from from you know uh, uh, us observing from you know what what we can observe here in America. I mean, do they seem like they're still ready to fight tooth and nail to try to gain everything back? Uh, you know, what's the you know approval rating of Zelensky and his government and things like that? I, I'm curious, kind of you know, as as the war draws on and there's not any progress if uh if there's any you know change to the ukrainian attitude i feel like early on they were very motivated to you know fight to the last man so to speak but um i just gotta wonder if that uh if, if their spirits or attitudes have changed at all over the past year well it's important to remember that dissent has essentially been made illegal in ukraine the media has been nationalized. You need to get a license to be a journalist or even a blogger, uh, have a blog in Ukraine. The news station, there's just one 24-hour news station uh, that delivers the propaganda of the day to the Ukrainian people. And so it, it does appear, though, that the morale of the Ukrainian people is uh, waning. This has been reported widespread in U.S. and U.K. media over the past I would say it really started over the summer as the counteroffensive did not net any major successive successes and have massive losses for Ukrainian troops. I think that started to break the morale of the Ukrainian people. Now we have the New York Times reporting that the viewership of Ukrainian state media is plummeting. And when they talk to people, it's because they understand that that a TV channel is just lying to them. Just this week, uh, I found in the Washington Post, Jacob, and I wrote this up for the Libertarian Institute, that a in a village in western Ukraine, which is where uh, a lot of the Ukrainian nationalists are and is, you know, the most kind of pro-Ukrainian, you know, think about the South in the U.S., right? This is where uh, a lot of the young men that are recruited to go into the military are. And uh, a women from the town barricaded the road because they heard a rumor that a recruitment official was coming to town to uh, conscript some more of their men. And so we're starting to see anti-draft protests in Ukraine. And in fact, part of the reason that Zelensky split from Zelushny was over Zelushny wanting to draft another 500,000 young men and draft uh, drop the conscri mandatory conscription age from 27 to 25. And uh, Zelensky has been resisting that. So and it's be Zelensky is only resisting it because it's politically unpopular. So it does seem that uh, for the Ukrainian people, a lot of the shine has come off this war and they are now fairly war weary. Although, you know, who knows to what extent because of the, you know, kind of tight lib lid that you, uh, Zelensky's martial law and emergency powers have over the, the narrative in Ukraine. Gotcha. Yeah, that's interesting. There, there, there's also, of course, um, you know, what, what America's role is on this and the, uh, you know, if America is going to continue to, to, to offer aid or they're going to at some point, you know, tell Zelensky he's got to go to the negotiating table. I do want to get to that. But before we get to, to talking more about America's role in this, um, obviously, I want to also talk about this interview that that um, that happened uh, with with uh, Vladimir Putin and Tucker Carlson, uh, which was you know again a very weird interview because the first 
half of it almost seemed like not even a real interview. It seemed like Putin just kind of giving a like Russian propaganda history lesson uh, <laughs> or something like that. Um, so, but it was definitely still uh, monumental. And then, you know, as the interview went, as the interview went on, it seemed to uh, get better. Tucker was able to ask some really good questions, uh, including, you know, grill uh, Putin on, on some things, you know, he, he wasn't just pitching him softballs there the entire time. Uh, I was especially surprised how hard Tucker went at the, you know, pushing to bring, uh, bring home the, uh, the one American hostage there. He didn't, and he didn't just back down immediately. He kind of kept pressing him on that, which, you know, it's like, I tell you, you're like sitting in front of the president of Russia and like, you know, the journalist pressing, it's like, you know, it's like, ooh, I'd be a little nervous to <laughs> be asking those questions <laughs> to, to Putin like that. So Tucker's definitely got got some stones on him, uh, so to speak. Uh, but, you know, the, the media not only are not giving him any credit for how well he conducted himself in that interview, but uh, they, they have before and since just kind of like smeared the whole thing as basically some kind of like... Uh, like like Tucker is a propaganda uh, peddler himself, just uh, and that's all this was going to be was just Tucker going to interview Putin to just allow him to basically uh, regurgitate Russian propaganda, and and Tucker is just uh, not a real journalist and things like that, uh, which just seems ridiculous to me. Um, what what do you, what were your thoughts of that in terms of just kind of like the, the the build up and then sort of the reaction by the corporate media uh, to Tucker and this interview. Um, and, you know, also I'm curious, you know, I, I haven't had a chance to, you know, ask my, my friends and family uh, and non-libertarians what their thoughts were on the interview, but I, I'm curious. Um, I mean, I've seen a little bit on social media and Twitter and, and whatnot in terms of some reactions, just kind of like people being surprised by how well, spoken and educated Putin was, um, but I haven't seen much past that. So what, what are your thoughts there on the the uh, sort of the way the corporate media tried to portray uh, this interview both before and after and then what the reception to it has been? Yeah, so I, I guess that's one of the hardest things about even talking about this interview, because in a way you want to call Tucker Carlson and hero and be like, you know, this is one of the greatest pieces of journalism that we've seen in several years. And on the other hand, he honestly just did a good job. I feel like he challenged Putin a little bit. And and everybody's talking about the 30-minute history lesson that, that Putin gave at the start of that interview. It's not like Tucker just let him ramble through that. He asked him several times, like, hey, you know, kind of what's your point here? Get to what you're saying. Uh, but if anybody's seen an interview of Putin in the past, he tends to do this thing where, you know, he, he just goes on. Now, this is another place where, you know, by comparison, it really shouldn't be that big of a deal that a leader, a nationalist, you know, leader of a country could speak for a half hour about the history of his country. You know, somebody like RFK Jr., I'm sure could go on for a half hour about the legacy, say, of the Fourth Amendment, right? And why that's important. And he could talk about all these different American figures and what the British did in colonial America and how that developed into what we have today and how that's now been eroded. And you, you, so, you know, the giving a 30-minute history lesson about your country when you're the leader of that that country shouldn't be some great thing, but... I suppose it was a greater length of time that he covered, though. Like, America is such a young country. Uh, it was where, like, Putin started out, like, in, like, 
the, the ninth century <laughs> and traced it sure, all the way to but... present. So, but I get your point. Yeah. Like you're, if you're a statesman or even like probably just your average citizen would be able to give a somewhat, you know, you know, decent enough summary of, of the history of their country. So you would certainly expect that the, the, the head of state would be able to do so as well. Right. But nobody could imagine either Trump or, you know, Trump or Biden giving a, a 30 minute coherent explanation. You, you know, even if you feel like Putin was just giving you propaganda the whole time, it was a linear explanation for the question that Tucker Carlson asked. It certainly went on for a while, but, you know, I I feel like Putin maybe thought that this was his one opportunity to really talk to the American audience. And I think if you were talking to a Russian audience, that style would have been much more engaging than, you know, kind of what we're in, 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 in used to in the U.S., which is, you know, two or three minutes is a long time in a row for any of our politicians to speak. Right. So, um I mean, two sentences is a long time for our current president to speak. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, for me, a single sentence is quite an accomplishment <laughs> at times. For e- again, for either Trump or Biden at this point, uh, so you know, to see Putin do that is kind of wild. I think for some people, it was probably uh, somewhat humanizing to just see him sit there, be calm, explain things. It seemed a lot, you know. Again, even if you think it's propaganda. It seems logical. Yeah. It seems reasonable. Well, it, and it, and like the, the biggest thing that I came away with is now now two things are happening at the same time, right? Like because like we're libertarians, so we just view any head of state and we're like we're programmed to just view them with suspicion and understand the, the power dynamics, sort of like the public choice theory and things like that. That you know the incentives that that are at play. But on the other hand, it's like okay the last i mean really more than two years the last like from like 2016 to to now uh russia and putin have been you know increasingly portrayed in the media and by our politicians as this like force of evil like this boogeyman almost in like the most cartoonish ways possible and then you hear him speak for two and a half hours especially the beginning where he's giving the history and Although he's also a statesman, it's like okay, he's also a human being, and you know, I, I I think even from a libertarian perspective, I often think sometimes maybe libertarians were too quick to attribute, you know, like true maliciousness or malice to 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 people in government rather than just kind of like they're reacting out of incentives and 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 uh, you know, probably their own selfish ambitions too, but but they're not these you know, evil caricatures necessarily all the time, like we, we might make them out to be. And especially to like a normal person, you know, watching it, um, you know, I'd be surprised if, yeah, like you said, there wasn't at least somewhat of a humanizing element there to it to be like, Oh, like this is the, the voice and the, the demeanor and the, the mind of this great devil that, the media has been trying to, you know, hype up for the last few years. Like at the very least, I, I, I'd, I'd imagine it's hard for people, even probably, you know, huge staunch supporters of Ukraine. Like I, I can't imagine there's not a little bit of cognitive dissonance going on there if they honestly, you know, watched and listened to that entire interview. Because I mean, you can say what you want about Putin, uh, you know, 
definitely again a statesman acting out of self-interest of his country and portraying things in a certain way but you don't get the sense listening to him that like he's this bloodthirsty monster who's set on you know expanding russia to some giant you know world empire um like like his motives are are made out to be yeah and and i think that's the important point not to say that what everything Putin said here was right or that he wasn't trying to justify a war that he elected to wage or anything like that. It's just to point out that he comes off as a rational actor and the U.S. media and the U.S. government for years has tried to portray him as the new Hitler. And, you, you know, we could talk about Hitler historically, I guess, but certainly in the American mind, Hitler is this awful leader who killed at the cost of his own success, right? And that's, you know, kind of how people have been trained to view Putin as this irrational actor who would choose to kill before, uh, you know, even putting the success of his own people first, you know, the national security of his own people first. He would rather kill Ukrainians because he just wants to commit a genocide. And I think that is kind of what this rational uh, conversation indicates. Now, I want to point out that I thought Tucker did a pretty good job throughout the interview. I thought some people maybe lavished a little too much praise on Tucker here. I mean, you know, it wasn't the greatest thing that's ever happened, but uh, our standards are just so low for journalism right. anymore. <laughs> no, but but that's what I was going to say. But the standards yeah. are so low that you couldn't imagine another journalist doing this. And all the journalists that were so uh self-righteous about how oh tucker is just putin's puppet he's just gonna let putin spread propaganda uh you know though none of those journalists have ever asked any world leader a tougher question than putin than tucker asked putin uh two or three times to the interview i felt like he really pressed putin now there are times where I guess the one question I would have liked to, you know, hear him ask that I don't think he really did is, you know, what about the costs for Russia? What about the costs for the Russian citizens, the dead Russian young men? Um, you, you know, in Russia, they've kind of touted their economy and uh, some people I think have over-exaggerated how good the Russian economy is. Look, they, they've shifted to a wartime economy. Uh, I'm a I'm a libertarian who believes in Austrian economics. I know that's going to blow up in their face. You know, this isn't good in the long run for Russia. So, you know, Putin, do you, do you regret, do, like, you know, have, if you could go back, would you say yes, knowing that 20,000 or whatever number of young Russian men have died so far, would you go back and say, yes, all this damage and destruction that, you know, there's been attacks on Moscow. There's been hundreds of attacks on Russian villages inside of Russia, you know, by the Ukrainian forces. Has all this money that you spend billions of billions of dollars you know, really been worth it? And in fairness to Tucker. You know, this is his first time interviewing Vladimir Putin. He's giving this interview in Russia, and he already did ask Putin some confrontational questions. And so, you know, if I'm sitting down to do that interview, I'm not sure I'm going to, like, plan to ask Putin maybe more than one confrontational question. And then, you know, the, the mainstream media was so picky in Tucker. They're like, well, 
he asked Putin a tough question, but he waited all the way till the end of the two hour interview. And if you listen to how he asked the question and you, you know, the whole interview and everything like that, I think what he was trying to do is establish a rapport with Putin to make the question sound like, you know, just something reasonable that Putin might just agree to. And I don't think that anybody should have expected that Putin was going to say to Tucker, yes. And think about it from an American perspective, right? If a Russian journalist came to the U.S. and said, "Are can you right now agree to release this Russian activist? Well, you know, there's some complications around that because, you know, in, in the U.S. we have certain laws. And so, you know, maybe the president can issue a pardon and say, oh, yeah, you know, I'll issue a pardon. But if I, I could just see some complications arising from Putin saying yes to the question. But the point is, is that Tucker brought it up and, and kind of presented to Putin in a way like, hey, you know, this is something you could do to show some goodwill towards the American people. Maybe you might want to think about doing it. And so maybe Putin will think about doing it. And, and so a lot of credit to Tucker for how he handled this, you know, uh, uh, certainly like a B plus A minus effort here. Yeah, I agree with that. So one of the selling points of this, of the U.S. support of Ukraine has been the talking point that Russia will invade Poland and other Eastern European countries next if they aren't stopped in Ukraine. And so Putin was asked about this point, point blank by Tucker, um, about the concept of if there's being any reason to fear that Russia uh, wants to even conquer all of Ukraine, <laughs> let alone planning other expansionist efforts. Uh, and, and Putin basically dismissed it as like, this is, you know, I think he called it like a cheap provocation or a, or, or a lie or something like that. Right. Um, More basically, propaganda. Something yeah. Like that. Yeah. Just basically said that there's no, that I think he no called it threat mongering maybe. Yeah. Yeah. He was like, he was like, he was asked like, was there any reason you would invade Poland? He's like, the only reason would be if they attacked us first. He's like, otherwise, why would we? What do we have to gain? We don't want Poland or anything. Um, he even several times, you know, made clear like we don't want all of Ukraine. Ukraine should be a sovereign country, but they should respect our borders and the Minsk Agreement and other things. You know, that he said. So, um, so what do you, what do you make of his answer? Do should we? You know, uh, did you believe what he had to say? You know, do you think? Uh, it was persuasive to the American people at all that were listening, uh, you know, beyond just his answer. Like, do we see any evidence uh, of Russia having, <laughs> you know, imperial or uh, expansionist manifestations uh, in their, you know, sort of like planning or in the in sort of like the consciousness of the people or the government? So, yeah, I certainly don't think you should take Putin out of his word for it just because why would you right but you could look at other you know pieces of, of evidence and kind of see that russia doesn't seem to have their sights set on poland nets uh the the first reason just the logistical one being the war in ukraine has not been a cakewalk for the russians uh certainly i think russia thought that they would be done with this conflict far sooner than they have been and, and so just the ability of the Russian military to go fight a war with and conquer Poland 
seems pretty far-fetched at this point. You know, Ukraine is not a NATO state. There are not NATO forces actually fighting there. They don't have a NATO air force. They have limited amount of U.S. and NATO weapons. And even that has been enough to, to cause Russia a lot of problems. And so the idea that Russia is going to move on from Ukraine when they can't even break the Dnieper River and go on to Poland nets is a fairly, you know, just absurd conclusion to jump to. I guess the nets, you know, point to make is that if you have listened to Putin, especially since 2008, he has made it very clear that Ukraine was a red line. And it's not like, you know, one day there was just a surprise attack on Ukraine that nobody saw coming. I, I mean, you know, it, it did surprise some people, but the, the point being here is that you, Russia, Putin was warning for 15 years that Ukraine moving closer to and joining NATO would eventually start a war. He has never made those threats with Poland. And his only red line for Poland is if Poland attacks Russia, then he would invade Poland. So I think if you kind of look at those two things put together, then yeah, there, there's no reason to think that Russia is going to invade Poland anytime soon, at least. I think you're muted, man. Yep, I am muted. <laughs> so, uh, tangential question to that would be, and you kind of touched on this already a little bit. I mean, is there even even like a a realistic scenario in, in which Russia, you know, militarily or economically, could afford to try to <laughs> expand? I mean, it, it seems like what they're going after in Ukraine. Uh, although I think they you know, they definitely kind of you know, took their shots, so to speak. Um, but even then, I, I don't know. I, it doesn't seem like they ever reacted with the intent of conquering all of Ukraine uh, as if they, they as if they wanted all of it. I think it's always been over these disputed territories along the border and being upset with the idea of Ukraine being part of NATO and then the construction of like the, the missile launchers in Poland and other places. So... You know, but beyond just if they had the desire to, like, do they even have, you know, the means to if they wanted to try to, you know, make any expansion? Because it seems uh, like you said, like they they haven't exactly even had a cakewalk just trying to take the the bits that they've tried to take from Ukraine back. Yeah, you, you just don't see the, the capability that Russia would have. And additionally, if you look at it, and this is something that Tucker, uh, that Putin brings up in the interview with Tucker, there was an agreement between Russia and Ukraine. And, you know, the pre, so first of all, I, I should go back, right? Prior to the war breaking out between Russia and Ukraine in, in February of 2022, there was agreements and talks between the U.S. and Russia to prevent that war. So Russia, you know, I, I think Putin felt like he went to war with Ukraine as more of a last resort, not a primary uh, uh, you know, attempt. And in those agreements with the U.S., Putin didn't even want the Donbass. He wanted the Minsk agreement enforced, which right. gives autonomy to the Donbass, but keeps the Donbass as a part of Ukraine. And, you know, I think this is important to how Putin actually viewed Europe prior to the invasion of February 2022. If the Donbass is a part of Ukraine and they hold national elections, then Ukraine is probably going to end up electing candidates who are at least 
not European centric, right? They're going to elect candidates that, and this was Zelensky at the time that either wanted a relationship like acting Ukraine as a bridge between Europe and Russia or more Russian oriented candidates like Yanukovych, who was the, the president of Ukraine who was overthrown uh, by the U.S. twice. And the last time was in 2014, of course. So uh, these, you, you know, Russia wanted Ukraine to be a buffer state. And to do that, you need a sufficient amount of people in Ukraine who are not the Ukrainian nationalists. And those are the ethnic Russians living in Ukraine, and they live in eastern Ukraine. And so pre-war, Russia's plan was not to even conquer Ukraine. They didn't want to do that. And if you look at the agreement from February and March and April of 2022, that again, Putin has talked about, Fiona Hill, who is a uh, Obama era advisor has talked about in the US, the Turks, the Israelis, the UN, the Ukrainians, all these different parties have admitted that this agreement existed. Russia was willing to pull back to the pre February invasion lines. They were going to allow the Donbass to remain a part of Ukraine. Again, they want Ukraine to be a buffer state, not to have invaded and controlled Ukraine. They only saw that as a last resort option. Right. And as you alluded to, this is something that, you know, maybe to the American public seemed like it was out of left field, but to libertarians and, and anti-war activists, foreign policy, uh, you know, junkies who stay informed, uh, this is something Putin's been talking about for a while. And that was something that uh, Tucker and, and Putin covered in that interview. You know, Putin kind of covered the history of 1991 to to present day, which includes a lot of broken agreements, you know, such as like not one inch in terms of NATO expansion after the uh, you know the end of the Cold War and the reunification of Germany. You know, the it was it was very, uh, you know, one of the premises that you know Russia was operating on there was that you know Germany be reunified and then NATO would not expand any further past that um, and. They've, they've done it, you know, many times since then, you know, George Bush uh, in particular did a lot of expansion. Um, and then, you know, they, they covered, uh, you know, the, you know the, not enforcing the Minsk agreements, as you brought up. That was a that was a major point of, of contention. The as I alluded to earlier, the, the dual purpose uh, launchers that were being built in Poland. And so Tucker asked Putin if, if all these things uh, together were viewed as a. Uh, provocation to war. And this is sort of what we've been talking about, all of us libertarians for the last uh, couple of years, is that, you know, th this didn't come out of left field. And that even though we would not agree with Putin uh, in terms of like, we're not going to say that the invasion was morally justified. Well, no, it, it you know, was still an act of aggression that's cost innocent Russians and Ukrainians their lives. Um, but, you know, if we're going to just understand how nation states work and what their incentives are and also like you know let's just you know what's the standard of what you know war warrants military action in the eyes of the american government and then you know how are other governments going to act if they're using those same standards that's what we've been talking about so tucker and i have the quote here here's what he here's what he said word for word he said i just have to ask you have said clearly that nato expansion eastward is a violation of the promise you were all made in the 1990s. It is a threat to your country. 
right before you sent troops into Ukraine, the vice president of the United States spoke at a security conference and encouraged the president of Ukraine to join NATO. Do you think that was an effort to provoke you into military action? And then uh, Putin's response was, I repeat once again, we have repeatedly, repeatedly proposed to seek a solution to the problems that arose in Ukraine after the 2014 uh, coup d'etat through peaceful means, but no one listened to us. And moreover, the Ukrainian leaders who were under the complete U.S. control suddenly declared that they would not comply with the Minsk agreements. They disliked everything there. They continued military activity in that territory. And in parallel, that territory was being exploited by NATO military structures under the guise of various personnel training and retraining centers. They essentially began to create bases there. That's all. In Ukraine, they announced that the Russians were a non-titular nation and at the same time passed laws that limited the rights of non-titular nations. Ukraine, having received all the these southeastern territories as a gift from the Russian people suddenly announced that the Russians were non uh, titular nationality in that territory. Is that normal? All this put together led to the decision to end the war that the neo Nazis started in Ukraine in 2014. I want to get to that neo Nazis part in a section second there because uh, some people might have been you know kind of surprised to hear Putin be talking about denazification and Nazis in context to this conflict with Ukraine. Uh, but but just what do you think there of that question by Tucker and answer by Putin? Um, you know, it, it seemed to, you know, again, it, it'd be one thing if it was just Putin saying this, but it's like, this is all the stuff that we've been saying and independently sort of like verifying with third party sources on our own by way of meaning like libertarians and particularly, you know, guys like you and, and Scott and, and, uh, um, and, and Connor and those over at the libertarian Institute, antiwar.com, um, you know, and often, you know, backing up what Putin says with exact quotes from U S personnel, who have who have said like yeah we know this we know we're crossing red lines uh, I think it was I forget her name but I think it was like Bill Clinton's uh, uh, Secretary of State or at least someone in the Defense Administration who uh, repeatedly warned uh, I think I think Bush and Clinton that like hey Ukraine is like this red line like you guys need to you know stop openly flirting with this idea like that they take this really seriously so what 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 did you think of of that question and answer there yeah and and there's been a lot of cold war era american officials who really did oppose nato expansion and saw how it would provoke the ukrainians and so i guess a couple of things i would point out one you know tucker's question is basically asking does the the fact that the U.S. plan to admit Ukraine into NATO, was that enough to provoke you into invading? And Putin's answer is a little bit more complicated and nuanced, and I think it's a pretty accurate reflection of kind of what happened, where Putin is saying that that's important, but really what happened, it was treating Ukraine as a de facto NATO member. And so if everybody looks back in uh, September of 2021, Ted Galen Carpenter, who's now a writer at the Libertarian Institute, wrote this one for the Cato Institute, and I really hope it's still up on their website. But he explained how the, the, the Biden administration, during their first six months in office, had really started to treat Ukraine as a full-on de facto NATO member and had signed all these pacts with Ukraine to hold war games within Ukraine. 
And Russia started complaining at the time that these war games were essentially being used to set up NATO bases in Ukraine. And I do think that he was essentially right in this. And so Russia in 2022, in late 2022, starts a military buildup on Ukraine's borders. And I don't think that Putin actually intended to invade here. And there's a few reasons why. And we could get to one of the things that I think Putin may have been a little bit dishonest about in this whole interview here. But so Russia commences this major military buildup in 2022 and early, uh, or I guess it was in 2021, late 2021 and early 2022. And then I believe that the Ukrainians actually attacked the Donbass region on the 20, 19th, the 20th, and the 21st of February 2022. And that's what actually provoked Putin to launch the invasion. And so one of the things I think Putin was dishonest about in the the um, interview is he says that the reason Russia withdrew their troops from Kiev in, I believe that was March of 2022, was as a part that this deal was moving forward and was all in place and everything like that. If you actually read stories of what was going on at the, the time, those Russian troops were completely overextended. There were not supply lines. They did not have access to supplies. And so I think that withdrawal was pretty tactical from the Russian point uh, to say those troops who are really out there kind of in no man's land. Uh, and it, and and so certainly I'm sure Russia and Putin was serious about like, hey, I'll remove these troops to get this deal done. But it was also strategic on the part of the Russians to, to want to remove those troops. And that's part of the reason why I think that Russia really didn't intend to invade in early 22, because if they did, I think those troops would have been far better supplied and there would have been a far better strategy other than just penetrate as close to Kiev as you can in hopes of forcing the Ukrainians to sign a deal. That seems like a very impromptu strategy. So uh, that's that. That's kind of my take on uh, what Putin was saying there, and I think it was uh, a lot of what he said was pretty close to the truth, as far as how the, this developed and the war broke out uh, over the past couple of years. Yeah, I I, I agree, and I I think, you know, again, it's 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 not like these, it's not like he's saying these things in in it's in a vacuum. You know, we we you, know, you guys are really good at you know anyone can go to the things that you've done that Scott's done. And, you know, you guys have, you guys have footnotes galore in terms of, you know, things that uh, it's always fun to see politicians hang themselves by their own words that they didn't think anyone would go back and look up. Um, I, I know that uh, speaking of quotes that hang politicians by, by their, by their own words, it's been suggested that the, the Minsk agreements, you know, were, were essentially, kind of a ruse almost to allow us to, to build up Ukraine for a kind of like this upcoming future conflict. It seems to me that the U S is interest in all of this um, other than just kind of like their maybe like baseline generic, like, you know, Imperial American uh, hegemony, you know, uh, interests and whatnot has been like, like the, the, as much as Russia wants Ukraine to be a buffer, I think America has enjoyed like using Ukraine as like a, um, you know, essentially a, a proxy state to sort of like fight and weaken uh, Russia. 
Um, you know, that there are quotes by Lloyd Austin, Secretary of Defense and others that that back this claim up that the idea was to, to use Ukraine as essentially a meat shield uh, to weaken Russia and, and that the Minsk agreements were just kind of like a way to get a ceasefire going and then spend the next, you know, seven, eight years or so to really like, you know, build up and fortify uh, Ukraine and in, in, in anticipation for um, a future conflict. Now, I don't know if that's really gone as planned. Um, I, I think uh, to some extent, you know, I think America put too much faith in their ability to employ sanctions and things like that to 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 weaken Russia. Um, you know, and that other people are actually uh, seeing that the U.S. dollar is is failing, and so that is uh that <laughs> they're you know america's imperial moves don't quite work as well as they probably might have used to um so i don't think they anticipated that um but i don't know like is that is there any merit to the idea that this was sort of you know a long-term you know plan not that necessarily like america like had you know that they they knew like to the day like oh we're gonna you know, push them and we know they're going to invade, but just in general that like their goals have been sort of to, to, to weaken Russia and to expand American interests at whatever cost. And that, you know, there, there's no way to, I don't think there's any way you can read everything that's happened and come away with the conclusion that like, no, the, the goal of the Americans and all of this has just been peace and, and the, uh, and the protection of the Ukrainian people or anything altru- uh, you know, altruistic like that. Um, rather, it seems to me that, you know, there, there's a high level of imperial bloodlust and, and, and apathy to human life. And I'm not saying there's not apathy to human life on the other side, but you know, again, just this whole narrative of like, it's just the good guys and the bad guys. And it's the, the big evil country invading the small, innocent country. It's like, you know what, like, you know, I mean, the Ukrainian lives are innocent, but the government, and you know the U.S. government, uh, they certainly have a lot of blood on their hands too. I think. What What are your thoughts? Yeah. So, in part, it depends on who you're asking about, right? Because there's a lot of different people in the U.S. government, and they, I think, they have a lot of different motivations and a lot of different perspectives on the world and how long they look at timelines, right? And so, if we're talking about maybe Hillary Clinton or Victoria Newland, Jade Sullivan. Yeah, I really do think that these people uh, are, are the one, when I talk about how dark I think the Ukraine policy is, these are the people who I actually think are committed to that policy. I think Joe Biden's probably in that category too. I think there's other people like Lloyd Austin, the Secretary of Defense, who are a little bit more reactionary. And it's not necessarily this like big overarching goal to provoke Russia into this destabilizing war to set back Moscow's ability. But, you you know, it's more just like Russia invaded Ukraine. Okay, what do we do now, right? Like there's never a concern about the past. It's just what next, what next, what next. And so, you know, you end up being in a really bad position by doing that but it's not necessarily as nefarious and well thought out. And so I think for a lot of the U.S. uh, political establishment, they see Russia as a perpetual threat to the U.S. and worse, particularly in the past few years, have seen Russia as a major and growing threat as it's moved closer to China. And so ultimately, for a lot of people, the war in Ukraine is not about Ukraine. 
And to some extent, it's not even about Russia. It's about weakening China's ally in Russia, right? And so the it, it's going to weakening Russia on its own isn't enough of a goal for them. It's weakening China's ally, Russia. That's really what they see as the ultimate goal. And so when Russia invaded Ukraine, Hillary Clinton cackled on MSNBC and said, it's going to be just like Afghanistan, right? She was talking about the Afghanistan when the Soviets invaded that awful, awful war that saw I mean, the the Soviets committed some vicious, vicious war crimes in Afghanistan. You know, they they would just like drive their tanks over villages and, and crush people in their homes, poison wells, just, really just horrific things to to do to people. Between one and two million people dead, uh, Afghans dead, right? And so when Hillary Clinton was laughing, she she was laughing because. It killed a lot of Afghans, but also it's a big factor in the collapse, at least, you know, by the mainstream establishment narrative of what happened to the Soviet Union. Uh, A major part of that collapse is because of Afghanistan. And so I think they saw the ability in Ukraine that they saw in Afghanistan where, yeah, maybe millions of Ukrainians will die in this war, but it will inflict a cost on Russia that will either break up Russia or, you you know, leave in a severely and long-term weakened state. And so that's really, I believe, what they were talking about here was turning Ukraine into a insurgency that Russia was going to have to, you know, fight against these neo-Nazis on the Ukrainian side for years and years and years. So I think what's actually happened in Ukraine, from their perspective, has been a huge success. Because, Jacob, we haven't even gotten to the insurgency that Russia will have to fight yet. They're still fighting the Ukrainian military. That was supposed to collapse in February of 2022. And so for me and you who see the Ukrainians no longer being able to field an army because they've completely run out of young men as the most horrific thing we've ever heard of, you know, fighting Russia to the last Ukrainian, that was something I was warning about. That wasn't something I was saying that the U.S. should pursue. And that's literally the, the road that we are going down at this point. And Hillary Clinton, Victoria Newland, and others see this as a success because, yeah, it, it's obliterated Ukraine, but it's also weakened Russia, right? Like that was yeah. a whole goal to weaken Russia here. And so, um, yeah, I, I think that was the U.S. policy. Yeah, and, you know, as a as a Christian and, and speaking to my primarily Christian audience and those who listen to my show regularly will have heard me say say this, but you know, the the idea in, in Christianity, it says in Romans 12, where we're supposed to live at peace with all, as far as it depends on us. And I I think that has to extend to to governing leaders to hold them to that same standard. Uh, Even the, you know, sort of like the Christian doctrine of like a just war theory says that war is only just if all options of peace have been, totally and utterly exhausted and i'm like okay like look at look at what's happening here like look at what you know you and i are breaking down like again russia and vladimir putin you know we're not saying that 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 government is you know just full filled with a bunch of you know angels right certainly not but again the the idea that like well the ukraine ukrainian government and the american government are just the good guys here and that they were acting with just 
you know, exhausting every possible effort, every, uh, you know, every, they, they, they had so many peace talks and so many peace deals and they just kept trying to pursue peace and Russia just broke all these agreements and just kept on acting violently and lashing out violently. It's like, that's just, it's not what happened and anything, you know, although the invasion is unjustified, I, I see a lot more instances of America instigating uh, by America. I mean the government, but by the government instigating problems and the American government breaking promises and, and conniving and trying to manipulate um, than I do Russia and Russia, you know, to the extent that, uh, you know, they're a state acting out their incentives. And I'm like, you know what? I don't, I don't know how the American government would react any differently if, if they were in a position where Canada or Mexico were, were conspiring in similar ways a lot, you know, close to the border of the United States. Uh, it, it just, it, it boggles the mind that, uh, that, that people aren't able to see this, but I think it's just, it just speaks to the level of, of propaganda uh, you know, that, that people are taught in public schools, that people consume through the media and whatnot, and that people aren't, people aren't really, you know, unless they're listening to people like you or me, they're not, they're not being necessarily presented with a lot of these facts. That's, and so that's what was really cool about this interview was that for the first time uh, since this war broke out, uh, other than like maybe times where like, maybe like Dave, uh is dave smith is on like the joe rogan experience millions of americans are consuming a narrative counter to the american propaganda it's still propaganda it's russian propaganda but you know what their propaganda it's got a lot more truth mixed in it than ours does (laughs) that's what i came away with well you know and i think there's a couple reasons for that one, Russia is the country in a weaker position here, and the U.S. is the world empire. And so the U.S. is committing a lot more crimes than Russia right now and is a lot more aggressive than Russia just because we can be, right? It's not to say that if the shoe wasn't on the other foot, the Russians wouldn't be doing the same thing that the American government is. It's just saying that, you know, in the reality of the situation we face right now, you know, this is what it is. And, uh, you know, another point that I think is really important to make here is I I think it's important to criticize your own government and not so much criticizing other governments. You know, it's important to acknowledge, as you did, that other governments do not have clean hands. Putin is certainly a world leader with blood on his hands. However, think about the impact that you get to make. Uh, You know, if you criticize the Russian government, who cares? Right. Putin doesn't care if you criticize his government. And in fact, it kind of has a rally around the flag effect, right, where the more other people are criticizing the Russian government, where the U.S. government is the government that I actually have some, not much, but some leverage over in American politics is, you know, something I could really be a part of the discourse. And for people who are skeptical of that, you know, think about something like your favorite sports team. I see this happen all the time, right? Where if you're talking about your favorite sports team or, you know, your 
whatever town you know city you're from people are talking about your favorite sports team if everybody's a fan they could talk as negatively as they want about the team and all the little minutia problems with the team but if a fan of a rival team comes in and says something negative about your team then everybody gets all defensive right and then they're talking up all the people that they would be trash talking if they were so right like if you really want to address the problems then you got to like talk about your own situation and not somebody else's. Yes, I, I agree. We, we, we've mentioned this several times. I do want to maybe talk about this a couple minutes. Uh, again, this came up in the interview, but Hitler, uh, Hitler, Putin talked several times about Hitler, talked about like denazification and talked about uh, the presence of, of Nazis in the Ukrainian government and military. Uh, when I had Scott Horton on the show like a year ago, he he talked briefly on it, but I uh, I just figured it wouldn't hurt to, to to have a refresher on that. I also don't know if that's still the status quo. I think I've read somewhere that you know that, that they were there at the beginning, but that their presence has been uh, either reduced or eliminated. Although I'm not sure if that's 100 percent true, because I thought when I talked to Scott about it, he talked about like every time they would try to disband these sort of like nazi militias within the uh ukrainian military that they basically just like say no and refuse to lay down their arms so uh so i don't know how much you know about that but i i do wanted to, i wanted to give at least the audience who who you know the portion that hasn't heard any of this before a little bit of background and uh you know why why are we talking about nazis in the middle of a of a war between ukraine and russia yeah so a couple things the first one is that the negotiations that were hosted by Turkey in 2020, in early 2022, that almost ended the war after just a couple months, the Ukrainian negotiator has come out and said the not the denazification was not an important point for the Russians, right? They want Ukraine to agree to neutrality. That that was the main point for the Russians. That's really what they wanted. Now I'm sure they would have liked to have seen the Azov battalion disbanded or at least, you know, no longer officially a part of the Ukrainian military. Uh, but at the same time, you know, the, the Ukrainian side has said the denazification was not a top issue for Vladimir Putin. That said, I think for Putin, he sees it as a pretty powerful propaganda point for his side. And there's a lot of truth to it, right? You, you know, the Ukrainians did collaborate with the uh, Nazis during World War II, the Ukrainian nationalists. And there's a lot of Ukrainian uh, fighters right now who worship and who idolize Stefan Bandera, who was the main Ukrainian collaborator with the Nazis. And a lot of the Ukrainian militias have adopted Nazi symbology. And the U.S. and other Western media outlets have even complained that it's hard to get pictures of the Ukrainian military without them wearing Nazi emblems. And in fact, you know, this was really up until the summer, it, it felt like every day. And it, it seems like this is curtailed a little bit with everything happening in Israel, uh, that I think the independent media is just a little bit more uh, divided and not everybody is paying attention to all the pictures coming out of Ukraine. But for a long time, it was like every day, a new picture that somebody would identify, oh, here's the New York Times with uh, a, a you know Ukrainian soldier with a Blad sun, a, a Nazi emblem on their chest or something like that. So 
It's certainly a real problem within Ukraine. Uh, I, I think to some extent, a lot of the hardcore neo-Nazi fighters of the Azov Battalion were based in Mariupol and did die during that, that fighting or were captured by the Russians during that fighting in the first couple months of the war. Now, there are groups like the Russian Foreign Legion, which confusing russian foreign legion it's a ukraine it's a pro-ukrainian fighting group and its leader and a lot of other uh, members of that group are openly neo-nazis you know that they 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 just don't hide their swats because right that these are the kind of people that we're talking about and they are still alive they are fighting in fact some of them are carrying out cross-border raids into russia so Maybe the, the problem has shrunk some as the war has gone on. Uh, most likely, the most hardened neo-Nazis are the ones most likely to go and volunteer to fight for the ethno-nationalist state they want in Ukraine. And, and so, you know, maybe there's been uh, kind of a selected attrition of those types in Ukraine just based on the war continuing to go on. But certainly they exist, and certainly Russia has created a lot of Russian hatred. You know, they, they have carried out a lot of bombardments of Ukrainian cities. A lot of Ukrainian young men have gone and died on the front lines. And as much as, you know, us in the West, and particularly myself as an American, who doesn't have the, the you know, emotional attachment and who looks at it from a, what my country viewpoint is doing. But, you know, if I'm just, you know, some Ukrainian mother or father or brother and, somebody from my family is sent off to fight and they die at the hands of the Russians in Eastern Ukraine. Uh, you know, that's, I, I may never forgive the Russians for that. And who knows, you know, what steps that Ukrainians will take, particularly as this maybe does turn into some sort of counterinsurgency at some point, how much hatred the Russians have generated for themselves among Ukraine. And that's one of the reasons why as much as, you know, some of the people who, I think cross the line from just being anti-war and anti-U.S. involvement to actually being pro-Russia. There's not a lot of libertarians in that category, but there are some people a part of the kind of greater anti-war movement that I would call, uh, you know, a part of that category who have really tried to tout Russia's invasion here as a success. I don't think they see the long term and all the problems that Russia has created for themselves, including creating a long term enemy out of the Ukrainians. And, you know, if you listen to Putin's own statement, the, the Ukrainians are supposed to be ethnic kinmen of the Russians. Yeah. No, that's that's all, you know, it, it just adds another wrinkle to the official narrative. I mean, it's a little bit when you're trying to paint the other side as as the the devil but then the side you're supporting has literal you know nazis waving you know nazi uh you know some brandishing or wearing <laughs> nazi sy symbols and stuff uh it, it, you know again it just speaks to the fact that this is not reducible to good guys versus uh, bad guys like the uh, american propagandists would have you believe so you know, we're, 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 as we're coming to the close here, I have, I have two things I want to cover quick. Uh, one, uh, what's holding back an end to the war? Uh, is, is, I can't tell it. Washington. Sometimes, well, yeah. Um, and, and it's, it's frustrating because I don't know. I, I thought when the war broke out between Israel and Gaza that Washington officials and Biden would have the, Perfect, perfect excuse they needed 
to like, I'd be like, okay, they're at least going to like, you know, we need to close the chapter on this. And so we can go on to the, the next one. But, but, but then they're still discussing more spending bills. Like you talked about at the top of the show. And I, you know, and then like the second part of this question or the second question that ties into this is like, we have elections coming up and that seems to probably be what's kind of complicating this. Um, you know, I, I I always feel like part of the problem when you're talking to the average American about foreign policy is that they've never looked at like a world map and they don't have any understanding of geography. And it's like, hey, you know, so we, we have this proxy war with Russia that you, you Ukraine's caught in the middle of. We have the support for Israel as, you know, they're going to war against Hamas and Gaza uh, and, and killing over 12,000, you know, innocent Palestinians there. Last I I checked the official count. That is just the number of children. Oh, just the number of children. That's right. It's more, yeah. So the, the, just children. Uh and then we have recent uh statements from Biden followed up by by bombings saying that, you know, we, we need to put more, you know, more pressure on Iran. And I'm like, and, and some people are like, well, you know, Iran, how does Iran fit fit into all this? I'm like, well, not forget the fact that Iran's been like you know, the, the prize at the neocons and, you know, uh, going all the way back to like the, uh, uh, what is it? The project for the new American century, I think is what mm-hmm. it was called. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Iran's always been kind of like one of the, the, the big prizes that they, they wanted, but then look at Iran in terms of what's going on, because Iran is literally like, you know, just right below Russia. And then just to the, the, the North, uh, and a little bit, bit east of, of, of Israel. And I'm like, so like, look at the map. Look at what our government's trying to do with almost like being, you know, at least involved in, uh, I know we don't have like active troops on the ground anywhere here yet, but again, like having a major as the, as the world's uh, empire, so to speak, now kind of like having a involvement in three major wars going on and they're all kind of like right next to each other. And so... I don't know what's going on in the minds of the Democrats and and, and the neocons, uh, but you know, one could speculate that uh, you know the, to make elections go the way they want to, if they were to spark more uh, of a conflict in in this greater region, uh, th- that that would definitely have an impact in terms of how the American voters are going to turn out and what they're going to vote for. Um, although. I, you know, I I would hope one would hope that, you know, our elected officials would care more about, you know, not risking some giant, you know, escalation in in the Middle East and with Russia and a potential World War Three situation just to seek reelection. But um, I'm, I'm, I'm far too black pilled and pessimistic of our of our uh, elected officials to, to rule that out completely. So I don't know. There's two questions there. Like what's holding back the end of this war? And then what's kind of potentially going on here in terms of, you know, the the other things going on with Israel and now Iran, like what's, what, what do you think in terms of what you can tell is is sort of like the thinking there behind uh, the actions? Yeah. So what's purveying the end of the war in Ukraine? I think point number one is kind of the one I made earlier, which is it's still paying off for the U S and it hasn't even turned into a counterinsurgency yet. So I think that's, number one and that's like the long term that's why it hasn't ended yet and that's why i don't think it's going to end over the long term 
over the medium term, the reason it hasn't ended is because there's an election in November, and this is Joe Biden's war. He's gone to Eastern Europe, and he's gone to Ukraine, and he's made a huge deal out of backing this thing, and the whole world is autocracy versus democracy, and we have to spread, uh, prevent the spread of dictators and all this other nonsense that he loves to talk about all the time, and so I think for I don't think this is true for the American people. Let me make this clear. I think if I, I think Joe Biden could still win the election if he said tomorrow, I don't care about Ukraine whatsoever. We're done. We're going home. The Republicans could laugh at him and make fun of him until November about it. I really don't think the American people care that much, to be quite honest. So I think Biden is kind of in and the Democrats are kind of in a political trap of their own making on that point. So the war is definitely going to go on through November. I think it's going to go on much longer because Washington sees it as continuing to pay off. Now, as far as the Biden foreign policy and the Biden worldview, it's it's almost comical, right? You know, you, you feel like in your childhood and kind of growing up, you learn all these lessons that sometimes you're just trying to do too much. And the solution when you're trying to do too much is to look at everything that you're trying to do pick the most important things that you're trying to do and focus on those and get done a few things rather than, you know, screwing up anything. And, and you know, what it's been like, and this is why I picture when I think of the Biden administration foreign policy, it's like Joe Biden, Jade Sullivan, and Anthony Blinken are the three stooges. And they're trying to carry <laughs> like 25 to 30 bowling balls up a flight of stairs. And rather than carrying them up the stairs two at a time, they keep trying to take all 25 bowling balls at the time at a time and they keep falling down the stairs tripping each other and it's just a huge disaster because nobody could prioritize everything everything has to be a priority right and this is a huge point in the economic war against russia so had the biden administration gotten back in the iran deal and opened up and had a greater flow of Iranian oil, had they removed the sanctions from Venezuela, and had they removed some sanctions from Syria and Libya as well, I think the economic war against Russia would have been far more effective. However, they're trying to cripple and take all the oil off the market from four or five of the world's largest oil producers. It's just absurd to think that you're going to be able to cut off Russia from the rest of the world economy and the energy market. We're also trying to do the same thing to Venezuela and Iran. It's just, you know, if you want to prioritize, if you want to try to isolate one country from the rest of the world, then you could probably have some success in doing that. But you can't do it to a dozen countries because they're all just going to band together and trade with each other. And that's right. a large you know, part of why you know, the, the Russia strategy hasn't worked. And as you said, you, you know, there was some hope that once things started happening in Israel, the Biden administration would shift focus away from Ukraine. And I think there's a couple of reasons that hasn't happened. One is the Biden administration and Joe Biden himself are just subservient to the Israelis and Benjamin Netanyahu. And I think you, you don't want to take an infamous 10 minute pause to, to answer that question. If, <laughs> if the Israel lobby has uh, undue influence on American politics. <laughs> let, let me look at the guy in the background here for my answer. And he's going. Oh, God. So, uh, so 
Well, I and look, I think Biden is ideologically and emotionally committed to Israel outside of the Israel lobby. There's this story. It's uh I think Biden was in a meeting with Menachem Begin, who was an Israeli prime minister. Yeah. And I believe this meeting was in 1983. So it was pretty soon after Biden got to the Senate. And Biden like said to the Israeli prime minister, well, if I were you guys, I would kill more children. And Begin left the meeting going, this Biden guy is a real lunatic. Like he is bloodthirsty. <laughs> and so this like Biden's love for Israel has been long standing. But I think Biden has essentially kind of said to the Israelis time and time again, like, hey, you need to wrap this up soon. Hey, you need to wrap this up soon. And the Israelis keep saying to him, yeah, boss, sure, we'll we'll get to it. Yeah, we're working sure on it, buddy. Yeah. We're, we're, yeah, we're getting there. We're getting there. We got we got a little bit more to go, a little bit more to go. And, and it's dragging, and we're at four months now, right? So this is dragging on and on and on. I don't think the White House really thought that they would still be supporting Israel like they are four months into this. And so the reason they have to haven't shifted priorities is because they don't think they have to. Now it, it obviously is a constraint because Israel needs artillery shells and air defenses, just like Ukraine does. And even Zelensky has admitted to this while not trying to step on the toes of the Israelis too bad and not incur the wrath of the Israeli lobby uh, in the United States. So I, I, Look, uh, unfortunately, I don't think this is going to tie the Biden administration's hands. I think it being an election year uh, and as we move closer and closer to November, uh, particularly actors in the Middle East are probably going to maybe try to just keep things at the level of tensions that they're at, you know, particularly Iran, the Shia militias of Iraq and Syria, Hezbollah, the Houthis may not want to take things too far thinking there may be some sort of change in the future because Biden is just seems un unending commitment to Israel and, and won't bat down on the issue. So th this could all be a real disaster and it could all come to a head well before November and the U.S. could find itself embroiled in wars, you know, really throughout Europe and Asia. Yeah, no, it's, it's I mean, it's the doomsday scenario but it, it doesn't seem that far out again especially considering how close all these uh entities are to one another considering the fact that like you said the you know trying to sanction russia and iran at the same time uh you know tr trying to do too much at once while you're not in a position of strength because the u.s dollar is already kind of uh crapping out because of our uh you know the, the unsustainability of empire uh, there's just so much at play. Um, and you know, all we can do is hope for the best, keep trying to do our part to, you know, make people more aware of what's going on. Uh, I guess maybe like as a kind of concluding question, um, we talked a little bit about this at, at Freedom Fest when I, I interviewed you for the first time, but I mean, I think a lot of people listen to things like this and they, there's one of two reactions I often get. One reaction is really just sort of like doom and gloom, just like, oh, wow, like this is just too big. This is too horrible. What, but what could we do about it? Right. Like, you know, there, there's there's just nothing we can do. And so people kind of just 
you know, put their head in the sand. And th- that kind of leads into like maybe the second type of reaction, which is just kind of like an apathy just to be, you know, sort of like, I don't, I don't even want to hear, I don't want to listen to conversations like this is what I hear some people talk about uh, because it's just, it, it's too much. It's too big. Can't do anything about it anyway. Uh, but I, I don't know. I, I also know that while those two reactions are ones I encounter a lot, I also get the growing sense that there's enough people and this might be partly, you know, like a generational thing as, uh, you know, I think a lot more millennials and even, you know, Gen Z people are just, uh, you know, of a different ilk, so to speak, than the older generations were in terms of how they view politics and media and things like that. But uh, even in my own personal life, in terms of like interactions I have with family members or, or friends, people at church, people in the workplace, uh, I get the sense that there's people who aren't just, you know, wanting to give in to apathy or despair, but but they still do have the question of like, well, what can we do? Like, how how can we stand up to, you know, have our voices heard? Uh, people still buy into the fact it's like, well, it's like, yeah, I don't want these wars to go on, but we still got to vote for Donald Trump or still got to vote for Joe Biden because we can't let the other side win. What, what can we do as libertarians in terms of like, you know, offering people answers to those questions in terms of how we as you know american people as you said we have some influence over our government maybe it's not a lot but we still have some how can we wield that influence to promote peace and to hold our government governing officials accountable yeah I, i mean it's hard right because we're just people we're just voters And there's the military industrial complex, which is going to feed millions of dollars back into the coffers uh, in the pockets of the leaders in Washington. Right. And so, you know, we're we're working against some very powerful interests right here. Uh, You know, I would say this is the time I think that we had the most power and influence. And so, you know, when don't give your vote away, right? There's always this sense of like you have to vote for candidate ads because of candidate Y. You can't look at it from that perspective. It has to be, I will vote for candidate X if candidate X will agree to do whatever I want them to do, right? And I think if we look at it from that perspective and we make it loud and clear that right now we will not vote for a candidate who promotes more war and things like that, it is going to force our candidates to capitulate at least a little bit on these issues. Uh, you certainly hope. I do think the like genocide Joe protests are having some effect on the Biden campaign. I'm not, I'm not sure it's having an effect on policy yet, but you know maybe those kinds of things uh, are are somewhat affected. But I, I you know, I, I'm saying like if you are apathetic, I get it. It's it, especially to try to you know look at these situations enough to be able to have an understanding of how different groups of people feel. So the Israelis and the Palestinians, the Russians and the Ukrainians, to understand it at that level, to empathize at least a little bit with both groups of people means, you know, subjecting yourself to a lot of trauma that people have experienced. And, and you know, be really horrible and hard to handle, especially in, in war zones like gaza you know it's just like not not that not to diminish the suffering of the ukrainian people and the bombardment of ukrainian cities and things like that but you know if you look at the death toll of civilians the the death the number of killed palestinians in four months far exceeds the number of ukrainian civilians that is in in two years so 
Yeah. No, it is brutal. It's hard to it's hard to pay attention to to that and to look at foot. You know, sometimes it's I, you know, even myself, I'll I'll hesitate to click on you know videos or links that I see people sharing because it's just it 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 it's really hard to view you know certain images or videos and and uh, uh, not have that affect you. But I don't know. I guess I, you know. I, last word I would say is. I think maybe we need more of that is it. And I, I'm, I'm not suggesting people like, I don't know, like torture themselves by watching just, just gruesome war, you know, videos or looking at, you know, gruesome war photos all day long. But I don't know. We, we need to also not put our head in the sands. We need to realize like, like, you know, those things are happening and I, these governing officials at the end of the day, they they are still, uh, I mean, I'm thinking more like, you know, my libertarian anarchist hat on here, but like the, they are such a minority in the grand scheme of things. Like they, they have power, but it's only power that, that they have because the, the, uh, you know, those who are governed have essentially handed it over to them. Um, If I think of enough people and is this going to happen tomorrow? No. You know, are are we going to see, you know, some major libertarian anti-war wave at the polls in November. I, I probably wouldn't predict that. Although, you know, the, I think there's, I think you see some of that growing. I think that's what may, partly what's made RFK somewhat of a popular, you know, uh, in sort of like independent, you know, dissident circles. Although I, I certainly wouldn't advocate voting for him because he's uh, <laughs> still, still, he's only good out of, he's only good on like, you know, maybe one and a half of the wars that we've uh, we've uh, brought up here today. So, uh, I mean, but hey, one and a half better than zero. So again, I, I can still appreciate uh, his presence. Uh, but I don't know. I mean, like looking to the future, I think uh, I think the seeds are there. the The ground's fertile. That uh, if enough people who are listening to this are are able to share conversations like this, to come away with this, and 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 uh, just encourage in their own local spheres of influence for people to be more well informed. Uh, I, I'm somewhat optimistic, maybe not like six, you know, over the short term, six to 12 months, not super optimistic. But over the next four or five years, I'm somewhat optimistic that, you know, and the, the, the anti war sentiment in this country, uh, you know, couldn't continue to grow and make a major impact. So uh, that, that's my thoughts. Kyle, I want to give you the last word here in terms of uh, just sort of like, you know, bringing all this together in terms of, uh, again, understanding where uh, we are, where, where these conflicts are at, uh, what to look for, you know, maybe over the next six to 12 months and really keep an eye on what, what, you know, key things might happen that we should be, uh, focusing on both before November and the elections and afterwards, and then uh, we'll close out from there. Yeah. So I guess with Ukraine, the thing to keep an eye on is the funding bill and what happens with that is probably going to really determine the path forward. And so rather than going down, you know, option one, option two, option three, I'll just say, keep an eye on that. And then once it happens, uh, check out an episode of my show or, Start reading antiwar.com, the news section for a couple of days, because we'll probably have you up to date on, you know, what that means uh, for the future 
uh, depending on what happens in Congress around that bill. So, yeah, and I mean, I guess you know, as far as looking to the future goes in the anti-war movement, uh, maybe I'm optimistic four or five years down the road if we get that Dave Smith 2028 run. I guess that's what we have to wait for now. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. Um, well, you we'll, know, we'll there, see, right? <laughs> I don't know if uh, you caught this. Angela McArdle had a post saying that there would be a big announcement from Dave Smith soon. And I really hope that the libertarian mo movement had done such a poor job over the past year that Dave just like felt so bad for us that he was going <laughs> to leave his family and his little children to go campaign for the liberty movement because, you know, we're just so much more pathetic. Uh, and need his help and attention so much more than his own family. But I guess that's not happening. Well, you, you, so you, you we'll need to, to drop the you, you're, you're, you guys over there at the Institute are doing too good of a job. You need to drop the ball a little bit more. Maybe that'll maybe that'll kick him in the uh, in the butt a little bit. <laughs> but, uh, no, I mean, uh, yeah, 2024 election certainly is going to be interesting. Whoever the uh, again, we have RFK running, Trump, Biden, whoever the libertarians end up nominating. It's going to be Toad. interesting. Yeah, maybe yeah. <laughs> Toad's the hero we need, the, the hero we deserve, not the one we need. I don't know. Uh, we'll <laughs> see how it goes. Uh, who knows? Someone else could announce in the next few months. It's not too late. Uh, but uh, Kyle, I appreciate you coming on as always. And uh, anyone who listens to my show, uh, if you don't already, please subscribe to the Libertarian Institute and to antiwar.com. Watch Pilot's cod podcast and, and listen to the things he publishes. And uh, Kyle, just go ahead and uh, remind people where they can find all that. All right. The best place to follow me is on Twitter at Kyle Anslone underscore. I post everything I do there. Uh, Libertarian Institute Monday or Sunday through Thursday. I write news stories for the Institute so you can find them there. Fridays, Saturdays, I'm writing at antiwar.com. And every day it's the viewpoint section at antiwar.com. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Kyle, for coming on. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And uh, we'll talk to you again next time.